Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Fearful Jesuit, and this is The Paranoid Strain. Yeah, yeah, we know. Make with the QAnon antecedents. Sorry, Dana, I didn't give you an update ahead of time, so you're going to find out with the rest of them. What? What happened? Did you get a new Dana? Well, fine. I hope the two of you are very happy together. I bet she doesn't even have dulcet Northern European tones. This, this is just great. I guess I'll take my talents to a new conspiracy podcast where I'm actually appreciated. No, no, Dana. You're the soul of the show. You know they like you better than they like me, right? What? They do? Well, that's, that's very nice to hear. Tell them I think they're a wonderful audience. Okay, but you can do that yourself. Oh, right. You are the best, Straniacs. Mama Unicorn loves you. Glad we set that straight, but I wanted to announce to both Dana and all of you that as a significant, if long-planned, interruption to our ongoing QAnon series, we're about to put out something that, without question, is the biggest, most ambitious thing we've ever done. Didn't you do that already last year? The 186-minute album concerning the way conspiracy thinking led to the January 6th Capitol riots? Indeed we did, Dana. And that was a monumental amount of work, especially from Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra. Honestly, just getting all of it tracked, produced, and into the feed nearly killed us. So, of course, we decided this year to do something much bigger, more difficult, and more ambitious. Naturally. So, what's the big event you're coming this time? It's not a what this time, but a who. So, your big project is all about one person. Must be someone pretty famous and important. Well, that depends on who you ask. For some, this guy was a hero. To others, he was yet another angry white man spouting conspiracies in books and on the radio back in the 90s. But I believe that his story is uniquely fascinating and informative in trying to come to grips with our current conspiracy-addled times. You're going to give us a name for this interesting character? Well, because I took significant artistic licenses with the events of his life in the script, we're not using the name of the guy who inspired this project in the project itself. But as a sovereign citizen might put it, the real-life flesh-and-blood human man who inspired us is a guy named Bill Cooper. Oh, you're doing a thing about Bill Cooper. Great idea. He was, um, he was such an interesting dude, and he uh, had such an amazing influence on um, so many things. Great call. You've never heard of him, have you, Dana? I have not. But you seemed excited, so I'm trying not to yuck your yum. Am I saying that right? Unclear, as we're both in our 40s. But I will note that this is the same approach Lady Jesuit takes with regard to the podcast overall, and I appreciate it. So, um, whatever this thing is that you're doing, is this the introduction to it? 
Are you going to go straight into this Bill Cooper-inspired project after we finish speaking here? No. In typical Paranoid Strain style, this is the pre-thing that I'm putting out just to let everyone know that something else is coming a bit later. It's an opportunity for me to do a capsule biography of the real Bill Cooper so that I don't have to bog down the big project itself with a bunch of background and exposition before getting to the story. Think of this as your amuse-bouche, giving you an idea of what's to come, though it's not actually considered part of the meal itself. Somebody just streamed the menu, didn't he? He did indeed, and it's a great film. Superb satire. Robbed at the Oscars. Everyone should check it out. But in an attempt to stay on topic for once, I'm going to take this opportunity to give you a quick overview of the real Bill Cooper, the high and low points of his life, and an explanation of why I think he's a figure who's worth creating a four and a half hour music-filled fake documentary about. Four and a half hours? It's in acts, unicorn. Five easily digestible acts. Though I'm going to eventually provide a link to a complete uninterrupted umpty bajillion minute extravaganza for our Patreon subscribers, so you know, if you want that, please visit patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain. That's like 270 minutes. Unbelievable. I know. Isn't it great? But enough preamble, let's talk about Bill Cooper. And as we get started here, I would like to provide the appropriate credit to the two invaluable sources I used for both this prelude and for the upcoming Cooper-adjacent musical pseudo-biography thingy. The book Behold a Pale Horse by Cooper himself, and the magnificent biography Pale Horse Rider by journalist Mark Jacobson. The former is an invaluable primer on the way that Cooper himself thought. The latter is simply the finest portrait of a singular mind in the grip of self-destructive obsessions, both conspiratorial and otherwise, that I've ever had the pleasure of reading. Good evening and welcome to the Hour of the Time. I'm your host, William Cooper. A nation, our world of people who will not use their intelligence are no better than animals who do not have intelligence. Such people are stakes on the table and beasts of burden by choice and consent. Do you fit that description? I certainly hope not. If you do, then it's time to wake up and change it. And if you really want to know in a nutshell what's wrong with this country, go in your bathroom and look in the mirror. That was Bill Cooper, excerpted from his radio show back in the 1990s. The hour of the time was only ever available on shortwave, so it wasn't part of my regularly scheduled listening during that era. That listening consisted of a steady diet of Art Bell, various apocalyptic Christian radio preachers, and any other lunatic voice from the either he could find on either the FM or more likely AM dial, as those who've listened to recent episodes can attest. Yeah, I barely knew what a shortwave radio was at the time, and still wouldn't know what to do with one if he handed it to me. But if I had been able to hear Cooper's show, I would have been hooked, no doubt. The man could really rock a microphone, in a conspiracist, middle-aged, white-guy-talking sense. And his frequent bouts of lucidity gave his show, which I've listened to extensively in the past year in preparation for this project, a very different feel from the all-crazy, all-the-time, coast-to-coast AM. Not that he's saying anything negative about Art Bell, who might as well be the show's patron saint. No, indeed. Love me some Art Bell. But Cooper was a different flavor altogether. He was born in 1943 to a military family, never got along with his dad, and as soon as he was able, he signed up for the Air Force. When he completed his service in that branch of the military, having never seen combat, he promptly signed up for the Navy with two aims. The first was eventually to serve in all four branches of the armed forces, something no one in his military family had ever done before. And the second was to see some action. And the action at the time, obviously, was Vietnam. 
So Cooper headed to Nam and eventually became captain of his own patrol boat. He lost a close friend, a pilot of a different boat, in an attack by the Viet Cong, but in spite of his hunger for revenge, he to his credit managed to keep all of his charges safe through a nine-month deployment that saw plenty of action. Next, he was reassigned to desk duty in Pearl Harbor, handling classified information. This stint would become very important to Cooper's story in the decades to come, as this is the period during which he claimed to stumble upon top-secret government files revealing the cold hard facts about the government's knowledge of and collusion with the advanced aliens, who have definitely for real been visiting us since at least 1947. I'm assuming he didn't have photocopies of these files? He did not. But that didn't keep the feds from putting the screws to him. Specifically, once he left the service, he later alleged that he was racked by guilt over what he knew and his responsibility to share it with the American people. And it was when he was considering sharing what he knew with the underground press that he claimed some unnamed agents ran his motorcycle off the road, causing injuries that led him to lose his right leg below the knee. Jesus, that's horrible. It is indeed. But if you asked people who were closest to Cooper, his family, for example, this whole mysterious agents idea was a bunch of ex post facto storytelling designed to explain why he had crashed his bike and destroyed his leg without ever leaving any breathing room for the obvious and very convincing suggestion that this alcoholic risk-taker had gotten shit-faced and laid his bike down with the help of no one except Mr. James Beam, and therefore his lost leg was his own drunken fault. This recontextualizing of his own many, often catastrophic mistakes as part of his rebellious legend would continue throughout his eventful life, and make it very difficult for his biographers to get a firm grip on the facts of the matter. But what's unquestionable is that by the mid to late 80s, Bill Cooper was a discharged veteran who had probably by that point four or five failed marriages and three-plus children whom he didn't see. In addition to his numerous weddings, his relationships left a history of mutual accusations of domestic abuse, and he had an even more distasteful habit of losing touch with his several children as his relationships with their various mothers soured. It's worth noting that the reason that we, or for that matter Mark Jacobson and other investigators, can't say exactly how many wives or fiancés Cooper had is because even those closest to him, including those same wives, aren't themselves sure how many women Cooper pledged eternal fealty to. But what's not in question is that by his 40s, he had at least three children he was not supporting and had achieved, at best, limited post-military success as a traveling salesman. It's at that point that Cooper, leveraging connections he had built on early internet bulletin boards related to UFOs, parlayed his growing notoriety as a supposed truth-telling former insider to secure a key speaking slot at the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, convention in 1989. The live alien that had been taken from the 1949 Roswell crash was called Evie. It was short for extraterrestrial biological entity, and all aliens are not called Evie. Evie had a tendency to lie, and for over a year would give only the desired answers to questions asked. Those questions which would have resulted in an undesirable answer went unanswered. At some point during the second year of captivity, he began to open up, and the information derived from Evie was startling, to say the least. And this compilation of his revelations became the foundation of what would later be finished, called the Yellow Book. The speech was a barn burner. He presented a coherent, albeit completely unsubstantiated, thesis that the government had been cooperating with the aliens for decades, essentially giving them a license to capture and probe Americans on the sly in exchange for advanced technology, mostly military stuff. 
He claimed unique insights and status. After all, he really had been in naval intelligence in the late 60s and early 70s. And so when he said he had seen the files, these true believers truly believed. His honesty was no doubt bolstered by the confident exhortations he made to the crowd that they not trust his findings, but rather that they do, say it with me, their own research. This is, of course, decades before the internet and the anti-vaccination COVID lunatics turned that sentiment into intellectual parody. True. And it's worth noting that throughout his career, no matter how weird the rabbit trail he pursued, the man did, in fact, do his own research. He was incredibly well-read on the topics he deemed worth his time, though it must be said that his choice of sources was, let's say, highly motivated. He had little time for skeptical views, but all the time in the world for esoteric syntheses of history, mythology, and pseudoscience, all of which he wove into a grand narrative that he constantly filled in with new details throughout his life. The other positive thing he had going for him was that, unlike, say, an Alex Jones, he could actually change his mind, as he did, in a big way, about the whole subject of UFOs, just when his star was rising in the UFO community. He had become a big attraction on that circuit in the wake of his MUFON speech, but by the early 90s, he had completely renounced that version of the grand conspiracy narrative. Among the reasons he cited for changing his mind was a bizarre incident where a government scientist met him in his hotel room and demonstrated a miniature teleporting flying saucer, proving to Cooper's satisfaction that the whole UFO story was created by the government to cover up their real agenda. Again, this story has no evidence for it whatsoever, but it's still a damn sight better as a rationale for changing your tune than most of the bloviators you see in the conspiracy space these days can gin up. The next big phase in Cooper's life was writing his book, Behold a Pale Horse, which is unquestionably one of the most influential conspiracist tomes in modern history. Of course, part of the reason it's so influential is that it wholesale copied two other conspiracist milestones as part of its text. That is, our old enemy, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the late 19th century Russian forgery that has been used as a justification for anti-Semitism by everyone from Adolf Hitler to David Icke, which Cooper reprinted in full in his book, along with the already circulating pamphlet Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, a classic of the genre that alleged a grand U.S. government conspiracy to manipulate economics, politics, and other aspects of society to the point that average people would hand over their freedoms to their mysterious overlords in exchange for the comforts of modernity. Right. So Cooper's book is seminal partially because it copy-pasted the work of others, but it's also still read today by those of a certain mindset because it combines conspiracy theorizing with a real sense of the historical struggle of people against their various governments, and then layers on a sort of paranoia about institutions that those who have been ground down by those institutions can identify with. It's worth noting that the book has, since its publication, been widely circulated in prisons, and as Jacobson noted in a visit to Harlem, it continues to be a major profit center among street booksellers in majority African-American neighborhoods. Yeah, one thing that Cooper got really right that those aforementioned other white middle-aged conspiracy bloviators have missed is that the people who have the most reason to be suspicious and paranoid of the government are the minorities who have been consistently crushed by its dictates and double-dealing throughout American history. His book, unlike most, did not have a specifically white, Christian, conservative message, and so it has had an audience far beyond other books of its type. But again, he reprinted The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the book probably responsible for the most violence, death, and prejudice against a group of people that doesn't have the holy as a prefix in its title. True. 
true, and we shouldn't equivocate on the evil that Cooper's apparent endorsement of the protocols has done in keeping it in circulation, and top of mind among conspiracy-thinking individuals. But he does appear to have been one of those conspiracy-minded people who, even though they're not avowedly anti-Semitic, Cooper flirted with anti-Semitism when he came under fire for later comments, but except when he was being defensive, it's hard to see any sort of consistent anti-Jewish prejudice in his work, which marks him as a rarity in the right-wing paranoid conspiracy world. And we've discussed this phenomenon before. There are those who, in spite of not seeing Jewish people as the enemy, still see the genius in the Protocols version of the globe-spanning conspiracy. It really is the best of the best if you're a conspiracist. And since they honestly believe a shadowy cabal is indeed running things behind the scenes, they want to keep the protocol's general narrative, but recontextualize it such that the globalists or the Illuminati or some such stand-in is the real target, with Jewish rabbis serving as the scapegoats to keep researchers off the trail of the real culprits. This may be cold comfort, but in the conspiracy world, finding someone who embraces the protocol's narrative but thinks the Jews aren't at fault technically counts as a win. It's weird waters Jesuit chooses to swim in. It's true. And the pool is a strange color and smells kind of bad. But I've assigned myself as the lifeguard, so no running. Back to his book, though. Due to some financial disagreements with the publisher, Cooper never really made much money off the wild, if underground, success of his book. But he was able to parlay his rising patriot conspiracist anti-government star into the aforementioned self-funded shortwave radio show titled The Hour of the Time which ran from 1992 until it abruptly ended in 2001. Very abruptly. But we're getting to that. Topics ranged widely, though they almost always served the general theme of government duplicity and Americans being asleep at the wheel as their democratic republic slowly transformed into a totalitarian state. Cooper, on the air, continued differentiating himself from other right-wing blowhards, treating the Rodney King beating and subsequent riots with surprising nuance and empathy, for example. In addition to not being avowedly anti-Semitic, he also didn't seem to harbor personal animus toward blacks, Hispanics, or gays. This is partially because, while he referred to himself as a follower of Christ, he wasn't actually a fundamentalist Christian or rabid white nationalist. This brought him into conflict with some of his audience, but it's also one of the reasons he is such a fascinating subject. He believed a lot of bullshit, but not about the otherness of his fellow Americans. The only people he seemed to hate were... And yes, he used this term frequently and unironically, sheeple. I was really hoping I'd be able to tell you that Cooper coined this phrase, but apparently it dates back to left-wing radicals in the 60s, so I can't tell you that. But man, the guy liked the shit out of calling unbelievers sheeple. So let's put that in the negative column. Speaking of negatives, Cooper had an ongoing series of incidents with law enforcement and other agencies. He moved to rural Arizona, but also in classic conspiracist form, ran into tax and other problems with those local authorities. His sixth? The intonation that you hear from Jesuit is because six is her best guess. Yeah, maybe his sixth wife, and the one he was with the longest, eventually took their two children and left him in the late 90s, as his alcoholism, the increased law enforcement attention, and presumably their isolation from all other human beings, except a few dutiful Cooper loyalists, became an ever-increasing strain. Cooper, who had finally developed truly deep relationships with these, the youngest two of his five-plus children, was devastated. One of his adult kids from a previous marriage eventually reached out, and they had a reunion, both in person and on the radio show. But their mutual emotional and substance-related problems quickly nipped that relationship in the bud. By the last years of his life, his health declining, Cooper was increasingly dependent on the few loyal friends who still enabled him. The quality and consistency of the radio broadcasts suffered, 
he got into a fight with the company that ran the shortwave station he bought time on, and thus he was forced to move to a much smaller station. Essentially, things were just not going great. But it turns out, Cooper still had one trick up his sleeve that would cement his legend forever. Indeed. And this is truly verifiable. Back in June of 2001, on a radio broadcast, he essentially predicted that something like 9-11 was going to happen soon, and that Osama bin Laden was going to be blamed for it. You see, the CIA created Osama bin Laden. They recruited him. They trained him. They found his leadership. They brought them all together. They showed him them how to fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and when that was over, they still continued to fund him and train him, and they're now using him to help bring about world government by making him the big boogeyman because they can't use Saddam Hussein anymore because they needed a new boogeyman. But they're not looking for Osama bin Laden because I'm telling you right now, if I were the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, within two weeks I would have him dead or in custody without fail, without fail. And whatever is going to happen that they're going to blame on Osama bin Laden, don't you even believe it. Another social illusion, social engineering project to change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, and especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. And then, well, you know what happened then. So Cooper appeared to be a virtual Nostradamus of government conspiracy. His live broadcasts on September 11th and subsequent days saw him essentially inventing both major strands of 9-11 truth on the fly. That is, the competing suggestions that the government's LIHOB let it happen on purpose, or MIHOB made it happen on purpose. And he went on to meta-predict that because his previous predictions had been so dead on, he wouldn't be allowed by the powers that be to live and predict much longer. He was right about that one, too. Yeah, but it wasn't a government plot to silence a brave truth-teller. It was a local warrant related to him scaring the shit out of the family of a prominent citizen for having the nerve to venture onto the hill that Cooper considered his private property, but that he didn't actually have title to. Jacobson's book details the whole story, but the gist is that a new sheriff decided against the advice of his predecessor, and even against the federal agents who had finally learned their lessons after Ruby Ridge and Waco. Anyway, this new guy decided that damn it, justice must be served. There was a shootout. Cooper permanently paralyzed an officer before he was killed himself on the threshold of his house and studio, presumably intending to live broadcast his Armageddon standoff with the authorities. In the wake of his death, a new generation of bloviators like Alex Jones presumed to report on the event as a government conspiracy. The irony being that Cooper fucking hated Alex Jones and everything he stood for. But Cooper, his recordings, and his book continue to be relevant in the conspiracy world to this day. Which leads me to the final question of this prelude. Why did I choose to fictionalize Cooper's life as our big musical project this year? It's hard for me to give you a clear answer. Partially, it's because his is a compelling narrative. Partially, it's because he's a conspiracy theorist who, unlike most, was actually able to change his mind. But mostly it's because for all of his many alcoholic, spouse-abusing, credulous, self-serving, petty, and violent tendencies, there's a core to the man that was better than the average of the conspiracists I've studied over the years. He had a central insight that I think is absolutely true. Americans and citizens of all free nations don't take their citizenship seriously. 
and that is a real threat to the continued existence of the free societies that they enjoy. That people's laziness in accepting narratives that are spoon-fed to them is leading to big problems in our understanding of the world and why it is the way it is. And so, next week, we will present not the story of Bill Cooper, but the story of a very similar man, Marvell James Fletcher. He's desperate for all of you to notice that the name he picked mirrors each of Milton William Cooper's three names. That is, famous English poet first name, standard American male's middle name, last name based on a medieval trade. So, like, please act like you're impressed. We're presenting this story as the audio version of a fictional, failed documentary film project, with the director deciding in the wake of recent events to put out the audio he has collected in order to help people understand a complicated man whose influence on current conspiracy thinking can't be overestimated. But mainly, I'm eager for you to hear the 50 original songs, 50, 50, that the Paranoid Strain Orchestra has written and performed for this thing. I know I'm prejudiced as the keyboard player of that same band, but rest assured, they're fucking amazing. And, lest any of you worry, the Stupid Land Chats are back as well, though they're playing totally new non-chat roles. Exciting. This whole thing is super exciting. I can't wait for you to hear it. I guess you could call it our second rock opera, but this has a lot more narrative and much more well-developed songs than last year's effort. I thought about calling it a musical pseudo-biography in five acts, but that made me want to punch myself in the face, so I gave up. It's just Upon a Red Horse, and I don't think you've ever heard anything like it. Once again, I want to remind you that if you sign up for our Patreon, that is patreon.com slash theparanoidstrain, I'll send you a Google Drive link once all the shows are up, to a single MP3 version of all five acts of this project so you can listen to it as one long, uninterrupted experience ad-free. If you want in, sign up. In the meantime, keep your eyes and RSS feeds peeled for next week's presentation in five acts released Monday, May 1st through Friday, May 5th of Upon a Red Horse by the Paranoid Strain Orchestra. Yeah.